Well, I want to add my welcome to those who have come before me this morning. Uh, You're all looking good today. So it looks like everyone got a little rest maybe over the week, Uh, a little extra special time with family and with friends, ate a little bit, too much probably. Nah, not too much, right? And uh, great to see you here on the Lord's Day. I am really thankful to be here amongst, as the the video just uh, demonstrated, a family of servants. Uh, So many people serve here in so many different ways. Many of them, most of them, you don't even realize. Behind the scenes, uh, working in the nursery, in a sound booth, with children in other places, holding doors, handing bulletins, cleaning, over and over. Uh, Servanthood is exemplified so well at Heather Hills. And today we're going to talk about one of those servants together. You know, you may be thinking from the text we just read together that this doesn't sound much like an Advent sermon. Um, It sounds like the same old deacon sermon that Brian preaches every year about this time. Well, you'd be right and wrong. Um, I am going to talk about deacons this morning, as I do each year about this time. Uh, But the text that we're looking at absolutely has a connection to Advent. And I will show you that when we finish this morning. And because this text has that connection, I wanted to reorganize my deacon sermon a little bit this year to put a little more of the emphasis on Jesus and a little less of the emphasis on these people we call deacons. I want to be faithful to the text, as we're always committed to at Heather Hills, but I also want you to think through this very familiar text, which I speak on every year, and and think of it in a different way than we normally do. And I hope that it will be clarifying for you especially for the men who serve as deacons or aspire to serve as deacons. And I hope it will be encouraging and helpful to you, all of you as Christians first, and then as members of a local church who's preparing to select more deacons next Sunday at our annual meeting. A pastor made a statement on a video that I watched last week. It went something like this. The two most basic things that a pastor can teach his church family is first, what is a Christian? And two, what is a church? You know, as I began to think about those questions, I wondered how many of you would answer those questions. I would hope you'd get both of them right, uh, especially after teaching on the gospel and on the church for Lots of uh, sermons over at least the 13 years that I've been here. But I suspect that even though most of you would get these answers correct from a biblical point of view, maybe each one of you would emphasize a distinct aspect of what it means to be a Christian or what it means to have a church, to belong to a church. Well, as I was thinking about it, answering it just from my heart and my mind, here's the thing that that first struck me. Both a Christian and a church are created and ruled by God. 
I can't make myself a Christian any more than I can make myself a giraffe. I, I can't change myself from being lost to being found, from being dead to being alive. It's a work of God. He's the one who transforms us, and as Ephesians says, he makes us a new creation, right? All things pass away. All things become new. And God created the church when Jesus died on the cross to redeem us and to purify for himself a people, as the book of Titus tells us. God literally gave us the instructions on how to do church. In fact, look down at verses 14 and 15, right here in, our, in, in chapter 3. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul says, here's why I'm writing to you. So that you know how to behave in the household of church. You know what to do, how to live, what to say. That's the reason Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. It's the reason he wrote most of his letters in the New Testament. So, we won't do things the way we want to do them in the church. We do things the way God tells us to do them, right? Now, there are lots of insignificant details that he doesn't give us instructions about. Like how to decorate the church for Christmas, right? We can figure that out using our own discernment. But he does tell us Largely what we should do when we meet together. He tells us what our mission is as we go out into the city. And he tells us what kind of leadership we should have. That's what this chapter is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you look back in verse 1, according to verse 1, there is an office of overseer or Another word is elder, or the common word we use is pastor. And in verse 8, it says, likewise, there's one for deacons as well. And the list of qualifications given for each office tells us that these people who serve in these offices have to be examined before serving in these roles. They need to meet a certain standard in order to serve in these roles. And we get some help from other places in the New Testament as to what these people do when it comes to the church. There's a clue in verse 2. Look up at verse 2. There's a clue there for elders, for pastors, a qualification that is not carried over into the deacon role, unlike most of the other qualifications. If you notice, a lot of the qualifications are almost identical between the pastor and the deacon. But there's one that stands out as different at the end of verse 2. Did you see it? Able to teach. Pastors are generally the teachers in a church. 
the ones who dedicate their time to prayer and the ministry of the word. Just like the very first leaders in the church, the apostles dedicated their time to prayer and the ministry of the word, as it says over in Acts chapter 6. What do deacons do? Well, there's no detailed list, but the name itself is helpful, right? The word deacon, the name deacon, means someone who serves. That's why Pastor Greg just mentioned up here a moment ago that many of you are probably deacons in your own home and don't even know it because so many of you serve your families so well in many different ways. We might call that a deacon with a lowercase d. Not, a, not an office deacon, but a deacon by definition. And the very men who were chosen to occupy this office, originally, back in Acts 6, the seven men who were chosen to first occupy this office were literally chosen to help provide for widows in their church in Jerusalem that were not being cared for. Among other things that freed up the apostles to focus on their word and prayer ministry. It's interesting that someone who serves would be included in a role of people who lead. That's not necessarily how our world looks for leaders all the time, is it? But it's not surprising to us who know Christ, right? Hold your place here and flip back to Mark chapter 10 for just a moment. Flip back to Mark chapter 10. I want to read a few verses here, starting in verse 35. It's a familiar story. It's in some ways kind of a tragic story uh, because it reveals some things about a couple of the disciples. But it also gives us some wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus and about how we are to function as well as followers of Jesus. Look at Mark 10, verse 35. You remember the story? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. We want the VIP seats. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, the other ten disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but every time I read this story, see this scene, I want to reach through the, pra- the pages and smack James and John on the back of their heads, right? Like, what are you thinking? Jesus had just told them in the verses before, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die for your sins. I'm going to raise again on the third day. And all they can care about is their own self-promotion in his coming overthrow of the Roman Empire, at least the way that they see it. Did you know that in verse 45, very familiar verse, the verb form of the word deacon shows up every time Jesus says serve. Jesus didn't come to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. What does this mean? Well, at least a couple of things. First, you brothers who want to become deacons or who are currently serving as deacons, if you want to gain some kind of power or position for yourself at Heather Hills, if you want a chair up here or up here, you've chosen the wrong profession. Deacons serve. It's unfortunate that in many churches, the deacons are simply thought of as a corporate board comprised of the smartest businessmen in the church who make sound decisions and keep things afloat financially. In other churches, the deacons are sometimes viewed as a representative political group, kind of like Congress to keep the executive branch, the pastors, in line so they don't do any crazy things. Still in other churches, the deacons are the ones who end up doing all the dirty work that nobody else wants to do. And since they're unpaid volunteers, often they get burned out over time. But none of these pictures show what the Bible describes as a true deacon. A deacon is like Christ, one who serves, one who serves others, not himself. And this service should never be a drudgery. It should be a joy. I am so thankful, brothers and sisters, that here at Heather Hills, the Lord has given us deacons like this. There are times when we make decisions together. There are times when we have to challenge one another in humility and in love. But most of the work your deacons do behind the scenes is service. Praying for you. Visiting you when you're sick. Helping you when you're in need. Giving counsel trying to strengthen you to do your task in ministry, providing an example of good works for you to follow, relieving the pastors 
of time-consuming tasks that could distract us from our primary responsibilities? Deacons do all these things and much more with immense joy. So as we review these familiar verses here for just a few moments together this morning, I want us to think of them as how they relate not just to the men in the office, but I want to think of how they relate to the ultimate servant of the church, the Lord Jesus, and see if that's an encouragement to you today. Three points. The first, uh, the first point is this. Deacon should have a Christ-like reputation. A Christ-like reputation, verses 8 through 10. Notice the first qualifications here for a deacon, verses 8 through 10. They likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Do you think of Jesus as a dignified man? The word basically means that there is a soberness about you, a reverence about you, a seriousness about you. We like to explain it to our deacon, our prospective deacons as uh, it means that you take serious things seriously. So in other words, you're not that class clown that always trivializes everything, always tries to make a joke out of everything. When we're dealing with serious things, you take them seriously. It doesn't mean that we don't laugh or have fun. We have a lot of fun, and we laugh a lot, mostly at each other. But we know when to be serious. When I think of Jesus' life, one of the passages that speaks to me in this regard is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember? Jesus has just finished giving this amazing message in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And do you remember how the people responded? And he's just got done telling the story of the wise man and the foolish man building their house on the rock, right? If you listen to me like this or like this, this is how you're going to end up. He's done. Sermon's over. Matthew 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus spoke as a teacher with authority, not like what they were used to in their religious instruction. He took serious things seriously and and spoke with authority. The idea of being double-tongued has to do with how you use your speech, specifically if you are deceitful or hypocritical with your speech, saying one thing to one group and another to a different group. When I think about Jesus' speech, the prophet Isaiah shouted out to me. Did he shout out to you? And this is what Isaiah shouted out to me. Isaiah 53, 9. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. When Jesus spoke, he spoke truly, honestly, not deceitfully, not hypocritically. 
Thinking further in in verses 8 and 9 here in chapter 3, to my knowledge, we do not read of Jesus ever in all of the Gospels, not once getting drunk or being addicted to something. We never read of him stealing money or using his influence to get rich quick. He, above all people, was able to have a clear conscience, as verse nine, or ver, the end of verse 9 says, because his life always reflected his faith perfectly. And he was tested. Boy, was Jesus tested. Over and over. In the desert with the devil. In the face of false accusations from the Pharisees. In the garden, on the cross. And Jesus always passed the test, didn't he? We shouldn't select men to serve as deacons who haven't been tested. We test men by interviewing them before presenting them to you as candidates. But life is truly the best test of a man. So brothers who would be deacons... Serve like Jesus in these areas of reputation. And brothers and sisters, select men who will serve like Jesus in these areas. After all, he is the greatest servant. Look secondly at Christ-like relationships. A deacon must have Christ-like relationships. Look at verse 11 and 12. Their wives also must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. How can we think about these areas in regard to the Lord Jesus? Well, first, the instruction regarding deacons' wives in verse 11. And yes, there is some debate about whether this word means deacons' wives or women deacons. I'm not going to get into that debate today. But I will tell you this. We generally think that it's best translated wives of deacons. And there's some reasons for that. We won't get into all that this morning. But one thing I want you to notice here is that the instruction about deacons' wives in verse 11 is remarkably similar to the first set of qualifications that we just looked at. The wife's dignity. The wife's speech. The wife's self-control. The wife's faithfulness in the tests of life should be just as apparent as her husband's. And we can look to Christ again as our example in those areas. But in verse 12... I think we can legitimately look to Jesus in his instructions in Ephesians chapter 5 for some help here. Because there, Jesus compares his love for the church to a husband's love for his wife. And over in Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible speaks of God's correction of believers as like a father's discipline of his children. What do we know in both of those passages? Their commitment to their family 
is absolute. If Jesus is your husband, there will be no adultery. There will be no looking at pornography. There will be no flirting with other women. There will be no abuse toward a spouse or toward his children. Leading with love and gentleness and courage and sacrifice, Jesus gets it right every time in his relationship to his bride, the church. The Father gets it right every single time in relationship to his children, to you and us, and his correction of us. Obviously, we don't get it right every time, do we? With our spouses or with our children. But the pattern of our life, the direction of our life, should be clearly seen as following the pattern that the Son and the Father have set before us when it comes to family relationships. Brothers who would be deacons, follow the example of our good and gracious God in your family relationships. And brothers and sisters, as you select men to serve like Jesus, observe their family relationships as you select them. Third, and finally, deacons should have Christ-like, they, I shouldn't say they should, deacons get a Christ-like reward. They receive a Christ-like reward. Verse 13. I love the last part of this text, don't you? Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons, take note of that, deacons, serving well. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. A good standing and great confidence. When we look at Jesus' example, we see the reward of his service when it comes to good standing. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says, When he had offered a purification for sins, he ascended to be seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. Because of Jesus' service on our behalf, coming to this earth, taking the form of a servant, made in fashion like a man, humbling himself, being obedient to the Father all the way to the cross, Jesus is rewarded with his position. He's seated at the right hand, the most powerful place, next to God the Father in heaven. While our standing is located with our church and perhaps within our community, it is still a good standing. You're not guaranteed, brother deacons, you're not guaranteed a seat like James and John wanted on either side. But the standing that you receive as a deacon is a good standing. It is a reward. It is a blessing for serving well like Jesus. 
With regard to the second blessing, great confidence, it requires a bit more thought. How was Jesus blessed with great confidence? Well, certainly, in knowing his father's business and being determined to fulfill it, even as a 12-year-old boy. You remember that? Certainly, in knowing, certainly in in being able to speak the truth without compromise, as Jesus did in every town and even in the temple. Certainly, in looking toward the cross and the suffering that was awaiting him, both physical and spiritual suffering, and Jesus deciding to endure it anyway, to persevere through it, as Hebrews 12 tells us, because of the joy that was set before him, because of the joy that would come as a result of his service. And brother deacons, those who would aspire to be deacons, and those who are deacons, you already know this, there are times when the service is hard. There's times when you have to bear burdens that are heavy. There are times when you wonder if you've made the right decision to pursue such a difficult task. But if you are able to receive, to work hard, to serve well as a deacon, to do your best with the Lord's grace, with the Lord's strength, He promises a blessing for you in the area of confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus. There is a joy before you if you would serve well as a deacon of Jesus Christ. Deacons who serve well are rewarded in similar ways. I could, I could speak about specific deacons. I won't this morning but because I don't want to embarrass them. But I could speak about specific men in this church who are sitting right here this morning that I have observed in my time at Heather Hills and how the Lord has grown them tremendously in their confidence in the faith as a direct result of their service as a deacon. Through all of the spiritual books we read together and think together through, all of the prayers that we speak together to the Lord, all the difficult issues that we wrestle through together, the Lord uses all of these to shape deacons into men of great confidence in the faith, men who influence other men, men who are not ashamed of the gospel. That is a great blessing and worth serving for. To know that there is a great reward in serving well as a deacon, just as Christ was honored for his service, It's motivating. It's humbling at the same time, isn't it? Brothers who would be deacons, submit to the work of God in your soul as you serve. It's a good work, and it carries great blessing. Brothers and sisters who will select men next Sunday to serve as deacons, pray for these men and the others who continue to serve that the Lord will bless them in these ways, that the Lord will help them to serve well 
as they are faithful. I'll ask the praise team to come on back to the front for our final song. Now as they're coming, remember I told you this text has a connection to Advent. To the coming of Jesus. You ready for it? Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This verse, verse verse 16, summarizes the truth that the church contends for and that the church proclaims. The format, you probably notice if you have an ESV, that there's, it's kind of written like some of that Old Testament poetry, like some of the Psalms and, and some of that. That's because the format of this hymn, or of this, uh, I gave it away, right? The format of these, of these words in verse 16 suggests that maybe this is an early creed or an early hymn that the church would sing or recite together. The mystery of godliness there at the beginning of verse 16 is the same as the mystery of the faith that deacons are to hold on to back in verse 9. The, the idea of a mystery, I think most of you know this by now because we've, we've taught it many times, but when the New Testament talks about a mystery, it's not talking about something that is a puzzle that you can't figure out. The, the word mystery, mysterion, in, in the Greek New Testament is referring to something that was hidden in the Old Testament but has been made known through the coming of Jesus Christ. So most of, I mean, all of the New Testament, from Matthew's Gospel to the book of Revelation, all of that we would call the mystery of the faith. It's something that was not all revealed before Christ. In fact, you know some of the verses about prophets getting revelation in the Old Testament and wondering what it was kind of all about. You know, you see verses about angels wanting to look into different things happening on the earth, right? Well, when Jesus comes, a lot of the things that had been mysterious in the Old Testament are made clear. And this content of faith, this mystery of godliness, mystery of the faith, this is something that deacons are to hold on to. Verse 9 says so. And what is the very first doctrine expressed in this hymn, that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. God made flesh. The birth of the baby Jesus. The first advent. So Christmas is a big deal in part because the teaching of Christmas is an essential element of the gospel message. It's an essential element of this content, this body of faith that has been passed down to us through the apostles, through the writings in the New Testament. And all Christians, especially deacons and pastors, must hold on to this. And must proclaim this to a lost world. So deacons, part of your job is to proclaim the truth that Jesus is manifested in the flesh. 
Part of your job is to be a herald of Christmas. So let's all do that now as we stand and sing. We're going to sing our song of the month once more to the Lord here this November. I do want to say if you need help in becoming a follower of Jesus and you are not currently following Jesus and you would like to know more about how you could follow Jesus and and put away your sin and and your walk in in sinfulness and and start finding true purpose in life and the blessings of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we would love to talk to you right after the service finishes in just a few moments. Please stop by the cubicle over here in the, in the corner, the left uh, corner of the, of the auditorium where a Bible counselor will sit down with you and open the Bible and show you how you can start to follow Jesus as your Savior. Let's stand together and sing.